Our practice is a very dynamic living process. You must have seen this for yourself, out of which new ways of understanding and appreciating our lives continually emerge. There's a way that we can really sense the great discovery in this process through clear observation and a true openness of heart and mind to be rather than to want to become. We gradually encounter those qualities of heart and mind that arise from spiritual practice, qualities that are in the essence, the core of our being, and that become revealed. The teaching of the Buddha's essence really reveals these um, factors of heart and mind. And tonight I'd like to talk about the seven factors of awakening, the bojongas. They're called in Pali. They're also called factors of enlightenment, but I like the word awakening better than enlightenment. We get enlightened, and uh, it seems that the awakening is already here. There's just a revelation of ourself to this reality of being awake rather than asleep. And yes, indeed, they are already present. These are not far-out states that are really at a distance, and they're right here within our own heart and mind. On retreat, we have this extraordinary situation where we can begin to have them revealed, and they operate in our minds. Very naturally, you'll see when I talk about them that you can relate to these quite directly. So um, they can not only be revealed in meditation practice, but once we can see how they operate, we can cultivate these qualities of heart and mind in our lives. There's no reason why not. So these factors are very positive states of mind. They're said to be wholesome. And when they are present, we can nourish ourselves upon them. Unlike the hindrances, which are the exact opposite forces that are said to be unwholesome, these spiritual awakening qualities replace, in a way, the hindrances within our own practice. They become um, sources of possibility of awakening. So, there's seven. Of course, mindfulness is in the list. (laughs) Mindfulness stands on its own. And then there's three arousing or energizing factors of quality of mind, which are investigation or inquiry, joyful interest or rapture, and energy or effort. Then on the other side, there's three calming, or we can say stabilizing factors, which are tranquility or calm, concentration or 
collectedness, steadiness of mind and heart. And the last one is equanimity. Now, just like the hindrances, these factors of mind are said to be present or absent depending on conditions. We can relate to these in a way that we can see them emerge at times. And therefore, it's important to realize that they're not at all personal, that there's no self to whom these factors belong to. They come up in our practice due to certain causes and conditions. When we practice diligently with continuity, with mindfulness as a foundation, very naturally these wholesome states will not only be present, but they're going to ripen. Each one of them we can sense at different times, but they also can emerge if the practice is quite established, they can appear as factors arising together. And gradually, of course, the hindrances diminish as these ripen. They counteract against the hindrances. I'd like to read a little piece of sutra, which um, comes from the middle-length discourse, and this is from the sutra, which talks about practice, Satipatthana Sutra. There's the Buddha talking to his bhikkhus, and you can consider yourself a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, yogi or yogini, because this is exactly the situation that is quite similar to monks and nuns. (laughs) Bhikkhus, yogis, on whatever occasion... A bhikkhu or a yogi abides contemplating the body is body, feelings is feelings, mind is mind, mind objects is mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. On that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in him. Abiding thus mindfulness, he investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. In one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tirelessly energy is aroused. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly joy, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body and mind become tranquil. In one whose body is tranquil and who feels gladness, the mind becomes concentrated. He closely looks on with equanimity at the mind. This is how the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven factors of awakening exactly what we're nourishing here. You can be glad. <laughs> it's said about these seven factors of awakening that they're so powerful that they have healing forces. And often the Buddha 
teaches this particular teaching for people who are ill, who, to his monks that are ill, just for the sake that if they remember these qualities, their state, physical state, just becomes improved. And as many stories goes, in a lot of these sutras, soon after they become healed. It's also said that the devas, the celestial beings, often come and visit places or situations where this teaching is offered because they rejoice in the fact that humans, just like us, can hear these teachings that bring awakening forth. So you might want to look for the devas. (laughs) tonight. <laughs> it's full moon. They especially come when it's full moon, what, what, two days ago. <laughs> so beginning with mindfulness, which here really stands on its own. It stands alone because there's two reasons for this. One, it is that it's a balancing factor for the other states of awakening. And it's also the linking factor, meaning that, once again, it's a favorite in the lists, in the Buddha's list. Probably you've noticed that by now. And although it has been spoken of quite at length, I'd like to say a few more words about this mindfulness quality in relationship to this context in our practice. So mindfulness is the cause for the other six qualities to arise. Now, what allows mindfulness to arise, you may want to know. You know, we hear about all these other factors that come forth and mindfulness emerging. What is the causing factor of mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is caused by mindfulness. (laughs) That is why... (laughs) We're not able to give you any other factor. Mindfulness is its own cause. (laughs) And it also keeps them in balance, meaning that we can never have too much of mindfulness. It's the only factor, you can say, mental factor, that can never be in excess. Unlike concentration, unlike energy, for example. This is why we insist so much on mindfulness, because this is what will bring forth all the other awakening factors. So to live with mindfulness here and in our life means that we live wholeheartedly. It means that life cares, and we care for life We engage in something completely. And just for that fact, with awareness, and to live our life in a caring way, this itself is said to be satisfying. When mindfulness is present, there is this rejoicing in the heart just because there's a greater connection. Now, in this context, mindfulness has three functions. What it does, like... In many other teachings, it said that it sees clearly. It acts, like Marcia said the other night, 
as a mirror. It reflects just what is, without any sense of interpretation, judgment, evaluation, reaction, commentary, whatever emerges in our small mind when it's not left alone. So mindfulness is just being present and seeing what is. The second way that mindfulness develops is that it is by cultivating this quality, we naturally bring forth the other qualities. It heightens our interest in such a way that these factors, the six other ones, are nourished and they come along just by themselves. Now the third function of mindfulness is to balance the mind. This careful attention and sees, looks, no matter what it is that it sees, even if it's attachment or aversion or delusion, if there's inner ignorance, even if there are painful states or afflicted emotions, mindfulness balances these states in a way that it just rebalances with um, quite extraordinary quality of um, presence. The only fact of staying present, it really enables one to see through what is happening. And this will definitely emerge with the next factor of awakening, which is investigation. Now, mindfulness will balance the factors of awakening which are energizing and the ones that are calming, meaning that if we sense that there's restlessness and mindfulness comes about, immediately it could rebalance and there's a state of calm that can emerge just by the fact of being mindful and knowing that restlessness or agitation is present. Mindfulness will have this factor of rebalancing in the same way if there's too much calm or even maybe dullness, not calm but dullness and sluggishness, then mindfulness will have the power to rebalance and to really reestablish some sense of um, equilibrium. So we can never have enough of mindfulness. In one of my retreats with Sayadaw Pandita, he asked me, of course, these interviews uh, arrive with uh, translation. So the question came, uh, are you missing many mind moments? And you know that when a mind moment, there's 70,000 mind moments in the clapping of a finger. (laughs) And I was so startled that I said, well, I hope not. And he said, this is the end of the interview, which of course I had said something which vexed him, and I wasn't proud of myself. Fortunately, we had interviews every day, and so the next day I see another Saido who says, uh, whoa, it didn't go well with your interview with Saido yesterday. I said, it sure didn't, and I started crying because I really, well, you know how sensitive we are on retreat. <laughs> and in fact, the question was, are you missing any mind moments? 
which of course I was. And the answer to say that, I hope not, was an answer of really being very proud of myself. And he explained this other Saido said that, Saido Upandita had said that this answer was one of an arhant. And that definitely I wasn't, which that I know. <laughs> but I think that the misunderstanding, and then therefore I excused myself, and I said I heard many instead of any, <laughs> which is quite different, missing many mind moments. We try not to. Now, if we miss any, of course. <laughs> so, um, I think this practice requires for a great sense of humility. <laughs> and at whatever stage, um, it really requires from us <laughs> so much humility. And it's a good quality to be humble. We don't need to blame myself like I did that day. Then I understood and all went well in the next interview with Saido. So as mindfulness grows, it develops very naturally these other factors of mind. And the next one is investigation or inquiry. Now mindfulness alone is not enough because it sees, but there's a missing link here. It sees, but it doesn't understand what it sees. It's just paying attention. This next factor, this quality of investigation or inquiry, which definitely brings about a sense of um, great, great light and understanding. This is the factor which really makes us notice the nature of an experience, the nature of a sensation, the nature of a thought, the nature of uh, an emotion, rather than stay at the conceptual level of thinking. Investigation and interest is exactly what gives us the sense of really seeing through the conceptual layers. As Marcia said the other day, this can only be done by experiencing ourself. We can't read about this. We can't listen to somebody else. And it's said that the Buddha said, Ehi Pasiko, come and see, come and experience for yourself this truth, this reality. Because in that quality of investigation, there is discernment. This is mindfulness with wisdom. Or you can say wise attention. Meaning that this investigation is not one that will elaborate on thinking, on figuring out, but just in a way that there's a penetration, in a way, of seeing through the layers of concept. One can see the nature. And it brings the light into the light of wisdom, of course, into our practice and into consciousness. So when we've been feeling enclosed in darkness, like being in a dark room, that mindfulness with that quality of investigation will just bring that light and whatever was present can be seen. 
It's not that something different is um, needed. It just lightens up what is present moment by moment. There is this clarity. Now, when we deepen this process of seeing, what do we see? We see the nature of impermanence, of anicca, that Marcia talked about. We see that mind and body process is not self. We see very clearly that everything that is conditioned will bring suffering when there's clinging. This is seeing the true nature of our inner life and, of course, outwardly. So this investigation with mindfulness, both mindfulness and wisdom, or it's also called wise attention, really sees in such a deep way that it reveals the truth of the reality of life. And it's all happening right here. We just need to look. Look closely. But that's all that is needed to really pay attention. This is a poem from Kabir. He says, Don't go outside your house to see flowers, my friend. Don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body there are flowers. One flower has a thousand petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there you will have a glimpse of beauty. Inside the body and out of it. Before gardens and after gardens. So this quality of energy is therefore manifesting. And that's the third, the second factor. Investigation, energy. Mindfulness is a part. Investigation, energy. When we look and we investigate in such a deep way, naturally there's going to be a closer looking and energy will manifest. That energy, which is also said to be effort, because there is a kind of effort, comes and goes. And we all know this. In a way that this energy um, doesn't really depend on our striving. And often we try so hard to have more energy. And in fact, we're not helping ourselves because the fact of trying so hard we just <laughs> diminish the little energy that is present by striving. Meaning that it's really uh, wiser to not take this level of energy personally. And that's often what we do. You know, we take this level of energy not as a condition which changes. You know, we often see these changing energies over a day, a moment, a sitting. It comes and goes. Can we move along and be steady in our effort in a relaxed way with the energy that is available rather than wanting another type of energy? So the effort is to stay stable, 
to stay steady, to watch very carefully, very mindfully, but not to try to have more than is available. And we often take pride, you know, when we do more than an hour's sit. We're so proud of ourselves. Oh, I'm a good yogi. You know, I've been able to sit. I've done an hour and a half sit. And then we take this <laughs> sit to be so personal. It's just happened that these conditions, mindfulness, investigation, energy, were present in that moment. Great. They nourish the practice. And they give us the heart to continue when <laughs> it's a little more difficult then there needs to be the stability where we can persevere. The next sitting, maybe we won't have any energy and then we feel low and grumpy. And yeah, in that sit, we're really not a good yogi. What happened to that good yogi that was (laughs) present two hours ago? And then we blame ourselves for our practice. We judge ourselves very um, hardly at times. And we feel that we're the worst yogi. So it's important with this level of energy to really take a greater perspective. To realize that staying steady means to stay really stable with what is and to move along with the rhythm, the flow of energy That will change. It will change in us all. It keeps moving. So in the context of effort, it's really staying established and apply mindfulness. Sometimes this mindfulness in regard to effort will need to be a little more active, meaning that we'll need to focus a little more on whatever is appearing. Sometimes this mindfulness will need to be more receptive. If there's a lot of energy, we can very um, wisely just adjust in regard to the circumstances. This practice is much more an art than it is a technique. And we really want often technical advice. And of course, there are many skillful means. But to remember that it's the attitude that really enables one to stay focused in the sense that we cultivate a sensitivity rather than a forcing or a pushing. And with technique, we can often misguide ourselves and feel a little bit forceful. This is from Achan Amaro. He says, often people ask, you know, what should I adopt with this practice? Should I be very strict or should I be more easygoing and go with the flow? He said, if you set yourself a task to do, should you stick to it? Or should you just be ready to adapt to the conditions? He says, we love to have a formula to follow, a simple pattern that we can always obey that tells us we should do this and then we should do that. It should be like this and then it should be like that. But in many ways we need to be like a tree. A tree has both hardness, firmness, and it also has flexibility. If a tree has just firmness, 
then when the fierce winds blow, the tree will break, the branches will snap. If the tree has just flexibility and no rigidity at all, then it can't stand up, it has no resilience, it will bend too easily. So in the same way, our practice uses both these qualities, being resolute and independent within ourselves, staying with that which we have committed ourselves to, and at the same time, being ready to bend, to move and shift according to the circumstances, the place, the situation. And if you think that these qualities are conflicting, they are not. Like in a tree, we don't think of the soft curves of all of a tall tree and the way it moves in the wind as being something disharmonious or ugly. We don't see its hardness and softness fighting against each other, do we? Why should we see softness and hardness conflicting each other in our own practice? So you see that it can really be both, depending on the circumstances. We give the necessary ingredients for a practice to blossom. And I often find nature so revealing. I'm sure that you've watched all these little spring flowers out there and how they grow at different paces, at different rhythms. And I'm sure that each one of them, you know, just blossoms the day that they'll blossom. They each have their own pace. It's exactly the same for us. When there's a lot of energy, then we can really be receptive, and this allows for even a greater sense of interest. Interest will bloom, and that interest is born out of connection. And it's the third arousing factor, which is called rapture, or joyful interest, which naturally emerge. Now that rapture, or joyful interest, or joy in the mind, is a spiritual quality. It's not born out of the joy of sense pleasure. It's a completely different state of being. It's dependent upon conditions in our practice. And this joy comes from seeing the truth. This joy arises from this beautiful quality of mindfulness and wisdom, investigation, and there's energy. And there's definitely a sense that there's a love of seeing the truth. It's a quality of heart that says, Everything is worth seeing. Everything is worth the of my attention. Whatever it is, even if it's a painful mind state, the mind will stay with it without any sense of resistance because there's enough rapture or joy or interest in the mind. And I'm sure we've all had this. Again, if we, I've had a period where I had extremely uh, difficult and painful knee pain. I was sitting in Burma for a lot, lot, long time again, and knee pain was one was really very, very hard, whatever the posture. And 
one day I just could sit with it, with this knee pain, which I hadn't been able to sit with for quite a while, and just staying it, staying with it, really noticing the effects of mindfulness and investigation and opening completely to the different sensations, really noticing that it wasn't solid at all. And this incredible, painful, solid thing became just a delight. It became rapture. It was the most delightful experience that came from a pretty... difficult situation. When there's rapture, there is delight. Not only delight in the mind, but there's lightness of body. There's a sense of floating. And so we're grateful for those moments. There may be, they're rare. (laughs) But still, they encourage us to continue. Now here again, it's important to not get overwhelmed by rapture. You know, we like to be blissed out and we're seduced. And if there's this quality in excess, what happens to the mind and body is that it's going to be agitated. Too much rapture because we like it, we're attached to it. So we want more of rapture, we want more of that joyful state of being. And therefore, um, it really is easy that it comes, rapture comes and turns into agitation or restlessness. This is why the Buddha found out that we needed to really balance these three incredibly energizing factors with calming factors, just in the way that they will stabilize the mind and help the mind stay in balance. So what are they? Tranquility, calm, concentration, calm, tranquility or calm, concentration and equanimity. I think that sometimes we don't talk about joy enough. And it's important. We did talk, I think Marcia talked about joy. It's uh, a quality that really gladdens the mind and that helps concentration. It's happiness and joy in the mind that is needed for the mind and the body to be comfortable, to be relaxed. When we tell you, relax, you know, in your attitude, be open. It's the gladness of the mind that will enable this quality to really be stable. But we don't emphasize joy too much, at least in the beginning, because it can turn into excitement or exuberance, which means that very often then there's this sense of excitement, which is not helpful then in practice. And it can shift very quickly in our practice. That's why we need to really see for ourselves what is present. And here again, I practiced with Saido Pandita in Nepal in the early 80s, and this was early on in my practice. And I was so excited about practice, just to be practicing and to have found this Dhamma <laughs> brought so much joy, even if it was really uh, painful. The conditions were horrible outwardly. <laughs> it was very noisy. We were all sick. 
And um, it was really, really difficult to practice, but I had found the Dhamma, and definitely it was so important. And when I went in for an interview, Saito Pandita, I said, you know, it's so extraordinary, the Dharma is extraordinary. And he just replied, you are too excited. <laughs> 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 Cultivate peace. <laughs> and so with my excited mind, I said, well, how do I do that? You know. <laughs> and he said, don't do anything. Just stay mindful. Be mindful. Mindfulness will take care of rebalancing this excitement. And he talked a little bit about the energy factor being in excess and gave me uh, a little talk about tranquility. So these three first one are active. The three other ones are receptive. Sometimes we need to activate the energizing factors. Sometimes, just like me in that moment, we need to stabilize the mind and heart. And it's really important that we see how this functions so we can really notice if these mental factors are present. How do we know? We just look. Is there peace? Is there calm? Is there energy? Is there investigation? Is there mindfulness? So tranquility is said to be nourished by happiness. It's that joyful interest which if it's not too much in excess, it will just bring tranquility. Tranquility is said to be like the cool shade of a tree if we've been in the hot sun. The state of mind definitely comes forth and springs forth from a state of relaxation. There's a relaxed attitude to begin with, There's not the sense of wanting to control or wanting goals or really hoping that our meditation will go somewhere where we want it to go and there's expectation. Then very definitely the sense of tranquility will emerge. And we can use certainly the feeling tone of neutral which is not often one that we notice. We often notice pleasant or unpleasant. Often with tranquility, the feeling tone might be quite neutral. And so we miss looking at that state. And so you can maybe see for yourself in these next few days if there's a sense of neutrality in the feeling tone. Notice tranquility is great. We're not used to it. We're so (laughs) excited and stressed or, you know, hyperactive in our busy lives that it's even more rare to feel this quality of tranquility and to appreciate it. This is from Achancha. He says, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will clearly see the nature of things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. 
but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So the stillness doesn't mean that it's fixated in any way, that it's a standstill and nothing is happening. And often we have this sense that when there's tranquility, we believe that everything should be stopping. No more thoughts, no more mind states, no more emotions. This quality of tranquility is the tranquility of mindfulness itself or awareness. It's the quality with which we see the changing nature of things. It's the quality of awareness that really comes forth as a greater perspective. There is, in our seeing, and why we can see more and more the nature of things, is that there's a spaciousness that comes forth. Definitely there's a greater space, meaning that rather than seeing all the objects, all the experiences themselves, we all see, also see the space around the objects. Just like if you had to come in this room, we walk in a room and we see all the colors and forms and all the objects. We're not really aware and not pay too much attention to the space in the room, the quality of that space. With practice, mindfulness, wisdom, investigation, energy, tranquility, there's definitely a greater perspective that allows us to see much more clearly everything that is happening within a greater spaciousness. So it's not about fixating on any state, but rather being tranquil with the arising, changing experiences. Now with tranquility, very spontaneously, the next factor will come about, concentration. We like that one. We want always more concentration. But again here, this concentration is a factor of mind that can stay stable. It's a collectedness of attention, of gathering of energy, which of course brings peace in the way that it just enables the mind to be steady. There's a stability in the possibility of seeing. It's the opposite state of the wandering mind or of the mind that's distracted. When there's concentration, there is no distraction. It just stays stable. Now this concentration will just come about again with the appropriate conditions. Concentration will come and go. And it's not personal. Even if we want to be more concentrated because it brings peace and that's what we like, it's important not to strive for it because striving for it, wanting for it, will just nourish more of the wanting, more of the greed. Concentration comes from a mind that is calm and happy, that is gladdened. Now the type of concentration that is nourished here is again not the type of concentration that we um, develop or cultivate for concentration practice. 
And it's often misunderstood again. We think that the soul experience of breath and staying with breath is what we're dealing with here. If we're doing insight practice, this is not the case. Of course, we need some stability. Therefore, there is an anchor for stabilizing the mind and allowing that mind to be able to practice in a way that we do encourage the stability to see more clearly and then to open to all kinds of experiences. So it's not exclusive. And that's a very big difference. If we want to practice to free the mind, to really nurture the mind to see wisdom, it can't stay fixed on one object. Even if it sees the changing nature, yet it can only see exclusively that one object. We want to see the whole of our emotional life, our thinking mind. This is from Achan Cha. He says, this is a Thai, great Thai master. He says, normally the untrained mind is full of worries and anxieties. When a bit of concentration arises in practice, you easily become very attached to it. Mistaking states of tranquility for the end of meditation. And that's exactly what we can do and mistaken concentration for wisdom. So concentration and wisdom really work hand in hand. The last factor is equanimity. And equanimity is born and results in being able to be with all experience, no matter what it is. It's this quality that is not knocked over in any way. It's not knocked over. It's the state that just doesn't fall into extremes, whether it's pleasure or not. It's this quality of radical acceptance, of trust, that really opens the heart and mind to meet everything in a non-reactive way. Equanimity is just non-reactivity. And in this particular context, it has a function As a factor of awakening, it is to fill where there is a lack. So where there's a lack, equanimity will fill that lack. And it's an extraordinary quality because it can reduce what is in excess. That's exactly what mindfulness and equanimity do when they work together. That's why it's an immensely powerful and beneficial quality. So we can count on these qualities of heart and mind to nourish and deepen our practice here, while we're here. 
and to really notice how they can become alive in our lives. Again, they're not far-out experiences. They're really quite powerful forces, but that can be accessible here on retreat. We can meet them again and again, and they can also be cultivated if we do a task at home, for example. And I'd like to read <clears throat> a teaching of Buddha Dasa, which is a great time master. And his way of teaching was he had the ability to really bring the teachings to life with ordinary people. He had farmers as yogis, and um, his wonderful teaching really manifests in the way that he was not at all attached to teaching to people that were only and solely practicing on a cushion. And so he has many, many ways that he grounds his teaching in a very ordinary environment. And I'd like to share a teaching of his about the seven factors of awakening and how they can be done in such a practical way. And they apply. So during his lifetime, the farmers around his monastery were still using water buffaloes which they don't anymore, to plow their fields. So he would talk to the farmers and um, how to plow their fields. For a farmer to plow his fields, he needs to use the seven factors of awakening. First of all, you have to be very aware of what you're doing. You have to be mindful of your buffalo, and you have to be mindful of the plow. If the plow goes too deep, it gets stuck. If it's too shallow, it doesn't do any good. You have to be mindful of where to turn, of what signals you are giving the buffalo, and a host of other factors. And not only mindful, but you need to be constantly investigating while you are plowing the fields with the water buffalo. The mind has to be alert in checking things out as you go examining the quality of the soil, the level of moisture, the state of the buffalo, the location of the obstacles. You have to be a learning process. You have to put effort into it, both physical and mental effort. Without effort, you will space out. If your buffalo is a good one, he may just keep going for a while, but some buffaloes are naughty, as are horses and mules, and if they discern any slackness in your hold, they'll take advantage of it. <laughs> Doesn't the mind do that? <laughs> you also need a certain amount of satisfaction in what you're doing. Whether we are plowing a field or practicing meditation, anything can be boring or burdensome if you don't find satisfaction in it. Or it can be fun, in a dharmic sense, of course interesting, rewarding. We are better able to pursue what we find satisfying in a wholesome way. And this satisfaction will bring a state of calm. If we're prowling our field but we are agitated physically, we'll annoy or startle the buffalo. 
If our mind's agitated, it will interfere with some of the other factors. It's easier to be present, whether plowing the field or doing meditation practice, when calm. When the mind settles down, it naturally becomes focused. The forces that agitate and distract the mind become eliminated, and it is easier for the mind to remain settled. Both the farmer and the buffalo need to be undistracted if the field is to get plowed before dark. When all these factors are present and they mutually reinforce each other, the mind gains the ability to just watch over and keep things on track. The effort becomes effortless, so to speak. Equanimity is like that. When you're completely in balance and yet you have some momentum, you don't make mistakes and the work just appears to move forward on its own. This is the great force of equanimity. So that's exactly like that, that it happens in our practice. It's a wonderful teaching. This is how the seven factors of awakening can work together. To really turn, and he's shown us so beautifully, any any activity of daily life into a rewarding practice of progress, that spiritual awakening can really happen, not only on the cushion. It's really important that we understand this. So we notice the presence of mindfulness. As we're mindful, investigation will come about. Energy will come about. Joy, rapture, interest, tranquility or calm, concentration, equanimity. Making these are objects of attention while you're here. Not only focusing on the negative mind states. Notice how these, if you really encourage them, meaning that you are applying yourself to see if they're present, then very naturally a sense of equanimity, of greater ease, will come about. Buddha describes the seven factors of awakening as the fruit of practice and as the states of mind from which awakening arises. Over the years of practice, we can sense and experience these qualities. And I'm sure that you can all relate to these Now, to embody these factors of awakening, it's really to awaken to our fullest inner potential. This potential, we each have it. It's just about a learning process to cultivate, to know what we want to attain. And therefore, there's a great possibility of just allowing the mind to free itself from grasping, from the force of wanting. Now these come according to conditions. We just need to nourish the appropriate conditions, and they'll come forth. With patience, with love, with openness and acceptance. The 
This is exactly what the Buddha did. And one day, we can be a Buddha too. There's no reason why not. You can trust this. Kalu Rinpoche, the great Tibetan master, and I'd like to close with his beautiful words. He says, you are the Buddha. Then why do you not feel it? Why do you not know it utterly through and through? Because there is a veil in the way which is attached to think that you cannot be a Buddha. That is attached to the appearance of things. Such as the belief that you are not the Buddha, that you are a separate individual. If you cannot lift the veil at once, then it must be dissolved gradually. If you've seen through it totally, just once, even one glimpse, then you can see through it all the time. Wherever you are, whatever presents itself, however things seem to be, simply refer to that ever-present inherent awareness, openness, and spaciousness. That is all. Let's sit for just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.